New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Magic can be described as the art of sensing energy, then learning how to flow with the energy rather than resisting it. It's spiritual Aikido. As humans, we find comfort in what is predictable and unchanging. However, the nature of reality is that everything changes, everything is in flux, everything is moving, and is interdependent. Today we'll be looking at a nature-oriented religion having rituals and practices that are derived from pre-Christian religious beliefs. It's called Wicca and is associated with witchcraft. In April 2007, the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs agreed to allow Wiccans to display their symbols on the grave sites of soldiers. What do we know about this much maligned form of spiritual practice? Today we'll hear from Caradwen Fallingstar, an avowed Wiccan priestess, to enlighten us on its practices and celebrations. Caradwen Fallingstar refers to herself as a Wiccan priestess and shamanic witch and has taught classes in magic and ritual for over 40 years. She gives lectures tying together psychology, spirituality, history, contemporary issues, and politics. She's the author of three historical novels based on her past lives and most recently is the author of Broth from the Cauldron, a wisdom journey through everyday magic. Join us for the next hour as we explore the teaching stories of a Wiccan priestess with our guest, Caradwen Fallingstar. I'm speaking with Caradwen at her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Kara Joan, welcome. Thank you so much, Justine. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I've been looking forward to it, too. It was just so wonderful to just immerse myself in your book and your whole life story. Tell us a bit about Wicca and its origins and practices. Uh, Wicca is uh, one of the Celtic European forms of shamanism that was 
probably, you know, practiced in one form or another uh, since the Paleolithic. It's the, you know, one of the traditional shamanic traditions of the European peoples. And it was mostly annihilated uh, during the witch-burning times, during a 300-year period in, in Europe in which witches uh, or anyone suspected of same was being burned. And so at this point, it's sort of a reconstruction of what is probably a very old way of looking at things and doing things. And you mentioned this at several times in your writings, that it's being nature-based, so to speak. It's like everything is alive uh, in, in this tradition. In other words, thinking, help us understand what that means. Yes, I think, um, you know, in our current culture, we act as if this earth is like a stage for us to strut around in. You know, it's the backdrop for our self-important play. Uh, and in, we use the term environment, which was such an awful word because it, it implies something sterile that, again, is just sort of a backdrop on which we stand instead of, uh, you know, understanding that, that everything is alive, that everything is present, that everything is trying to communicate with you. And not, not just the animals and the birds, the plants, the elements themselves, the air, the fire, the water, the earth, they'll all talk to you and guide you and show you things the minute you start showing up and paying attention. And this is something that, you know, Native peoples from all over, over the world understood, you know, at, at one time universally, and that has been now lost to us for the most part. So we're attempting to mm, reconfigure ourselves in a in a better way within the system. A shaman is someone who goes between the worlds in order to heal the worlds. And in my tradition in Wicca, we, when we cast a circle, which is creating magical space, which is creating the church wherever we are, we say, the circle is cast, the ritual is begun. We are between the worlds. And what is between the worlds can change the worlds. So the, the role of the shaman is to change the worlds, to heal the worlds, to bring them in harmony once again. And they often enter a trance space in order to to do that. In other words, a shaman would go into a trance and say, why, why are the fish dying? Why don't we have enough fish anymore? And they would talk to the fish people and they would come back. You know, many native, as I say in one of my stories in the book, the native people, when they were making a decision, they would have various people channel the animals. They would say, you know, who speaks for wolf? Who speaks for buffalo? And then a person would get up and channel the concerns of the wolf or the concerns of the buffalo. They wouldn't make a plan without thinking about how it might affect uh, those other nations, those other animals. And so that's something we need to get ourselves back to, is that willingness to realize that everything is present, everything's conscious, and that we're not the only intelligence walking around here, that all these beings, including things we think of as inanimate, the rocks, the dirt, the water. We don't think of that in our culture as being present. You know, I tell a couple stories in my book, in one of which I cast a circle and a bear comes out of the woods and walks all around the circle, circumnavigates the circle and goes off in the other direction. And in another, which I considered more miraculous, we cast a circle right by the beach, and when the tide came in, it parted around the circle 
and actually met at the back. The water itself had the consciousness to recognize the consciousness we were working with. And that was a huge game changer for me personally. I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, we, we are in communication. We are in communion with all these different aspects, all these different beings, these creatures. Um, and that's, that is a consciousness we need to regain. And if, if we did, we couldn't possibly be destroying the balance on this planet the way we are doing now. Humans, we we think of ourselves as so intelligent because we have such a huge vocabulary in our, our language, our articulation, and we've stopped um, using, most humans <laughs> have stopped using the, the language of the wind or the ocean or the animals. Is That's what you're talking about, isn't it? That these languages are still present and and we can tap into them. Right. We can we can talk. We can play. You know, people think, oh, well, how could magic possibly work? It's like, well, it works when everyone consents to it, basically, that you might be able to change the weather if the weather's in a mood to indulge you. If, it's, if it doesn't absolutely need to rain at that moment, maybe you can do a spell and it goes, oh, okay, I can hold off a few hours. Um, you know, it will play with you. That playful, you know, that again, everything does that. We, we, we frequently, you know, would do rituals, Beltane rituals at a place called Limantour Beach in Marin. And uh, often, pretty much uh, when we would invoke the West, the whales who were migrating at that time would start jumping out of the water, you know, right when we invoked the West, uh, which is the water, the whales would jump out. And this happened year after year, that it was, it was timed in that way because they were. They were paying attention to us. Previously, we would, you know, we'd have people down at the beach, at the edge of the water using the didgeridoo, and the whales would poke their head up in that gesture called spy hopping and go, whoa, you talking to us? <laughs> you want to say something? Um, I say everything wants to play, though the universe is actually a pretty playful place. And, it, you know, the more playful you can be, the more likely it is to engage with you. Uh, the more you think you're in control you know, and you're making things happen, <laughs> the less interested it's going to be in playing with you. Um, it's, it's probably going to, uh, you know, show you who's boss if you, if you come at it in that kind of, I am the great high poobah and I will this to happen. Yeah, it's not going to be too impressed then. Yeah, yeah, so there is some humility involved in this. And I'm wondering, um, as Wicca really shows respect for many life forms, including, as you said earlier, uh, rocks as a life form, uh, as a consciousness. And I'm thinking of our, ourselves, often many of us have a favorite rock that we sit on and maybe this is no accident. Maybe we're drawn to this rock because of a simpatico of consciousness. I, I'm just kind of wondering. It's a wondering. What What do you think? Yeah, I think absolutely. I have a, a small a piece of greenstone that I got from New Zealand that I sleep with. You know, I, I hold it in my hand. It's my literal touchstone, and I just have a great relationship with this rock. You know, it, it's, a, it's a very healing object for me or a very healing presence for me. 
And again, we call it an object, but what does that really mean? That doesn't mean it doesn't have consciousness. Uh, I think it's been used as a healing stone for many years before I got it. And it just ha- it's saturated with that, with that energy. And yeah, there's a, you know, a, near me, there's a, a tree that, you know, splits off in two directions. And I, you know, would often go up there and cr- climb up on it and lay across it and just hang out in the tree and kind of, again, soak up that slower energy, that more rooted energy, because often if I was, you know, off balance, particularly when I was grieving my husband's death, um, I would go there or else I would go to a hollow redwood tree and crawl inside and, again, be surrounded by that bigger energy and be surrounded by, you know, in the case of the redwood tree, the, it's hollow because it's been burnt on the inside, but it's still alive. And so I was learning from the redwood, how, how can I survive being hollowed out by this loss? How, how can I survive and, and move on, you know, from, from this experience? The tr- this tree knows. This tree has done it. So I'm going to hang out with that teacher. The trees have been some of my greatest teachers throughout my life. And um, yeah, we, we pick other beings and they pick us. We say that again? Yeah, I say we pick other beings and they pick us. You know, they choose us too. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm here with Cara Dwen Falling Star, and she is the author of Broth from the Cauldron, A Wisdom Journey Through Everyday Magic. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, which is theheartofthefire.com, theheartofthefire.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Cara Dwin Falling Star, and she's the author of Broth from the Cauldron. She's a Wiccan priestess. Um, magic, magic. Let's talk about magic. You use that in the subtitle of your book, Everyday Magic. Uh, what is magic in the Wiccan perspective? I think we generally think of it as the art of changing consciousness at will. That that's, you know, that magic is when you are choosing to shift your consciousness, you know, for a particular purpose or effect. Um, But of course, magic can also simply be that state of serendipity. Again, as I say, it's it's the substance of the universe operates in these um, mysterious sort of mystical ways. 
And uh, I, I have a, a quote that I'm fond of, which is that the universe is not only stranger than we suppose, but stranger than we can suppose. And certainly my experience in the world of magic has shown me that whatever, whatever limits I think there are, whatever rational ideas I have, uh, have been upended with laughable consistency um, by the forces that are, as I say, very playful and very much beyond uh, my ability to um, understand or uh, maybe even influence in any kind of major way. As I say, they let me influence them. Just to, just to amuse me at times, but uh, yeah, we're we're so small compared to those forces, and it's 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 an interesting game to play with them. So, are you saying it's it's not predictable? We can't control it, so to speak, but right. we cooperate with it. Right. So yes, we, yes. I I know some people have described magic as coincidence control, but I do think it's more like coincidence cooperation. That again, if you come with a cooperative spirit, you're more likely to get that cooperation from the forces that you're petitioning than if you, you know, come thinking that you are in control of the situation. That's one reason why we always describe magic as being sort of have, like the tides as an ebb and a flow. That you, the flow is where you're trying to put your will out there into the world, and then you let go. You let it go. You say, may this or something better happen? May this happen if it's for the good of all? You surrender, and then that's the ebb, where you surrender and wait and see what happens next. So there's like a, a two-part, you know, there's the out-breath and then the in-breath. And um, by following the energy in that way, like the energy of the breath, you're more likely to, again, just kind of sync up and become in harmony. It's sort of like, you know, you're, you're sailing a boat. You can't necessarily change the way the wind is blowing, but if you're very good with how you tack your sails, you might be able to get to your destination. So it's that, you know, learning how to feel the flow of the energy and, and use it to your advantage instead of just getting buffeted around. It, it seems to me that, that children, and I think you might agree with this, that children are closer to this kind of magic, or they can have these psychic abilities, but they get kind of squashed early on. Uh, was that the case with you, or, or did you have, grow up in an environment that encouraged you to uh, be fully in your psychic powers, so to speak? I, I grew up in a, um, you know, my father was a rocket scientist, you know, de designing the, the rockets and the, and the uh, uh, satellites and, and things like that for aerospace. So I grew up in a very rational uh, household where, you know, religion was the opiate of the masses. That was just for dumb people over there, you know, not for, not for smart people like us. So... When I started talking about my past lives and having all these psychic things come up and tell, predicting the future and having it come true, my parents were pretty rattled. They weren't, uh, they weren't really prepared to deal with something like that. Uh, in, in later life, uh, my, my mother, after my grandmother died, my, my mother handed me a, a, a little booklet that she'd found of, of my, my grandmother had been writing down all my cute sayings when I was like two years old and just learning how to talk. And every other thing was about witches. It was, you know, witches this and witches that. And uh, after I finished reading it, my mother said, she said, you see, you were always like this. We never encouraged you in the slightest. And I said, yeah, it's true, Mom. You never encouraged me. It's so not your fault. And she says, the only explanation is past lives, reincarnation. That's the only explanation for why you were the way you were. 
I was like, yeah, I think that's exactly right, Mom. I don't <laughs> think you have to uh, take any responsibility whatsoever. <laughs> she was much happier once she was off the hook for how I turned out, you know? Um, yeah. and, and, and in later life, she would never do anything without having me give her a tarot reading. You know, she would come consult me. She just came to totally accept my psychic abilities and to, uh, and to actually utilize them. So, so we, we, we had a little journey to get there, but it was, it was nice once we there, were there. I, I think that story that you told at the very beginning of our time together here, uh, when you you cast the circle, mm-hmm. I think you were new to uh, right. Wicca, mm-hmm. and um, maybe in your early twenties when you cast that circle, and it was on a camping trip, and right. your father actually saw you do that right. and saw the bear. Yeah. walk around the circle. What was his response to that? I said, well, I didn't know he was there, but then as I finished my ritual and was, you know, uh, preparing to sneak back to the family campsite, you know, he he rose up out of the bushes and and uh, he kind of looked at me and said, hmm, pretty good trick with the bear. <laughs> and so that was his response. Was, pretty good trick with the bear. <laughs> he was trying to figure out, <laughs> whoa, how did this happen? Because um, he had seen it. And I explained to him, you know, what I was involved with. And he was like, well, could have been worse. He could have been a Jesus freak. Could have been a Harvey Krishka. <laughs> so, <laughs> Harvey so was, Krishka. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> there was some you yeah, know, sort of a grudging, a grudging acceptance that uh, whatever I was doing there, well, okay, maybe there was a little something to it. Of course, my father himself was actually extremely psychic, and he used this all the time in his work. That's how he came up with Many of the inventions that that made the the you know the rockets and the uh, and the other things he was inventing work was his extremely good intuition. You know, they had these big jumps of imagination, and sometimes he had some. You know, as I write in one of my other stories, some really uh, very precise intuitions. Uh, at one point, when I was in high school, he had a, had a nightmare, and he told us all about it at bre- over breakfast, which was very unprecedented. In his dream, you know, one of us, and he didn't know which of his three kids, had gotten off a school bus holding something in their hand. The wind had blown it around the front of the bus. The kid had ran after it and been hit by a truck and killed. So he was, he was very shaken. And he gruffly said, well, you know, I hope you're all too smart to do something like that. And we agreed we were. So two weeks later, my sister was getting off the school bus. She had a painting she was very proud of in her hands. The wind blew it around the front of the bus. And she ran after it. She remembered my father's dream and stopped. And the truck blazed by and ran at, literally ran over the painting and put tire tracks on it. So he had these predictive dreams and things like that, but he, you know, he couldn't really admit to it. You know, when she told what happened later that night, he said, well, it's just a coincidence, but I hope you've all learned a valuable lesson. And, you know, that was, that was, <laughs> yeah. you know, he couldn't, yeah. he couldn't admit, yeah. um, but in reality, in my case, the apple did not fall as far from the tree as my parents would have liked people to believe. There was actually a fair amount of um, <laughs> these sorts of uh, abilities running around on both sides of my family. But it was rather hush-hush because, well, who wants to be thought of as crazy, right? <laughs> right, right. With, well, dreams, um, they're dreams like in the aboriginal way. Their their dream time is very, very real. And I know that you had... Another reoccurring 
for yourself, a reoccurring nightmare of not being able to get into the garden because mm-hmm. you didn't have a ticket. Right, right. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about children and their psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. And so to, if right. you could tell the story of Sophie. Oh, oh yeah. So was, uh, this was after my husband died that I was having this recurrent nightmare. There was a beautiful garden and, you know, children and their families were playing and lovers were kissing. And But there was a big fence around the garden and there was a gate. And at the gate you had to have a ticket. And I didn't have the ticket because, of course, I, my husband had died. And this was a metaphor for how I now felt barred from... Um, the beauty of the world, you know, the beauty of love and connection and all those things. So when uh, when my, my friends, I, I complained to my friends about this dream, and I was out to lunch with one of them and her two-year-old daughter, Sophie, and, uh, you know, apropos of nothing, all of a sudden Sophie grabs a sugar packet, uh, you know, out of the little container of sugar packets on the table, and she hands it to me, and she says, here's your ticket. And I said, is that my ticket into the garden? And she said, Yes. <laughs> And I was like, okay. So yeah, that night I went to sleep clutching my sugar packet. And in my dream, I handed my sugar packet and it turned into the ticket. And so there was that, you know, it was a metaphorical letting me know that you don't always need the big ticket items to have the happiness that you that you want. That sometimes something small, like a child handing you a sugar packet and saying that it's a ticket, um, is a big enough ticket to get you into the garden at least for a little while, to get you back into that place where life is good. And, uh, yeah. yeah, when we pay attention to our dreams, they'll tell us a lot. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful to pay attention to our dreams and pay attention to the children who are reading our dreams in some ways or or. It's just, again, like in my introduction, how everything is connected in some sort of way if we just kind of open ourselves to it. And I can remember in the early part of your book, you you brought up something that just uh, gave me a new perspective. We We've all kind of had those little icons that show the three monkeys, you know. Mm-hmm hear no evil, see no evil, and speak no evil. And that's kind of a Protestant sort of, uh, or maybe puritanical way of looking at life that, okay, I just won't do any of that. But you have a different take on that. Can you explain to us what that means to you? Yeah, when I was a, when I was a little kid, and I, I, I really appreciate that as a kid I grasped that so quickly, I hated that. I hated the monkeys. I hated that idea because what I was seeing in you know my 1950s childhood was that denial, which of course I didn't know that word. <laughs> didn't hear it spoken until much later. But that that my my world was running on people pretending that things were different than they really were, and that I didn't want to be part of that. I didn't want to close my eyes and not see anything. I didn't want to close my ears and not hear, and I didn't want to have to shut up either. And so, you know, I really, you know, as a kid, I was, of course, again, metaphorically thinking, maybe these monkeys have this power. You know, who are they anyway? How come they tell everyone what to do? You know, like, I'm just a little kid trying to figure things out and hook it together. But I was also very right that this this thing that everybody thought was so cute wasn't very cute, that it was all about 
pretending that life was different than it was and that nothing could change or heal. You know, we can't change or heal things if we're going to keep lying to ourselves about them. You know, that's the whole nature of addiction, right, is that people keep lying about the fact that they're addicted, the fact that they need to change. They always have an excuse. There's always a way to pretend that that's not really what's happening. That's how child abuse keeps happening. People look the other way. People pretend it's not happening. People say, well, that's up to the parents what they want to do. You know, these ways in which we don't take responsibility need to change. I'm here with Kara Dwin Fallingstar. She's the author of Roth from the Cauldron. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Kara Dwen Fallingstar, the author of Broth from the Cauldron, A Wisdom Journey Through Everyday Magic. Kara Dwen is a Wiccan priestess um, and also calls herself a shamanic witch. And that that word witch, it just it just has a lot of um People recoil from that, like if you call yourself a witch, my goodness, what what does that mean to be a shamanic witch? And we, we use, you know, I personally use witch, you know, interchangeably with Wiccan. Um, but I've, I, I like claiming that word witch because it's a powerful word, because it's a word um, associated with powerful women, and because women's power is ve- very taboo in this culture. And so I think it's a way of reclaiming it is instead of recoiling from it, you know, to, to grasp it, you know, in the same way that black people chose to call themselves black, you know, instead of running away from the fear that people have about the black and the dark, they embraced it. And how, you know, many of us in the lesbian bisexual community reclaim the word dyke and say, yeah, I'm a dyke. And people go, ooh, (laughs) and they want to back off. But again, by not letting the culture scare you off of these words of power, then we can step into that power and we can rename it and reclaim it. Like, I don't think too many people would say, well, you know, Jews shouldn't call themselves Jews because, you know, Jews have been so unpopular for so long. And look what happened to them in World War II. Like, maybe if they just call themselves something less polarizing, And you see how offensive that would be. It's like, why in the world would the Jews stop calling themselves Jews? Because some people don't like it. You know, we too, as women, especially, like another word that's come up that that, that I found, I'm a crone, you know, I'm old, and so I'm a crone. And wow, women are really scared of that label. I was uh, teaching a workshop uh, called, uh, you know, I think it was, I was calling it Reclaiming the Crone or something like that. I'll tell you, women would not go to that workshop. I had to change it to Continuing Saga. A saga is a female sage. That's where we actually get the term saga, which means a story. It's, it's literally from the uh, Scandinavian, uh, a female sage. So Continuing Saga is what I started calling it to get women to show up. And then I could introduce them to the idea of the crone. Because starting with crone just scared them. Because again, the old woman is so powerful 
that she's very taboo. Um, and that's why women are encouraged to look young and to have, have their faces done and to do anything to try and stay maidenly and attractive to men instead of stepping into the power that is the older woman and that is the crone. You know, I think all of those words are important to reclaim. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for giving us uh, the power back to call ourselves uh, what we really are and claim our power. Uh, I want to go back to animals. Um, there, You have quite a few stories that I, I just loved about the intelligence of animals and how animals are not afraid to learn new things and to increase their intelligence, whereas humans, we kind of get stuck on something and get into a habit of something, and we don't change. And there are several uh, wonderful illustrations of this uh, where animals are shown to be uh, purveyors of abstract thought. And you tell a story about some raccoons when you were out camping. Mm -hmm. And do, do you remember this story? Can, yeah. can you share that with us? Yeah, yeah. This is a, a pretty funny one. My husband and I were just in our 20s, you know, so we were pretty young. We, we had you know, gone to Butano State Park, you know, to, to camp. And we were hungry when we got there. It was dinner time, so we immediately just pulled some food out of the trunk and sat down at the picnic table. And started to eat. Then we heard a horrible growling coming from the bushes. And these two big raccoons, apparently locked in mortal combat, came rolling out towards us. And they were coming closer and closer. And we're like, oh my God, they're not even afraid of us. So we're afraid maybe they're rabid. You know, we're just we're just kind of, you know, staring at this as it comes closer and closer to the table. And eventually we hear another sound and we turn around, and there's a smaller raccoon on the bumper of our car. The, the trunk is still open, and he's grabbing a package of noodles out of uh, one of the bags of groceries, and he's handing it to the raccoon standing on the ground below him, who's handing it to the next raccoon, who's handing it to the next one. There's a bucket brigade of raccoons busy emptying out our trunk. As soon as we notice that, the so-called fighting raccoons break it up, and all the raccoons disappear into the bushes, and they have absconded with almost an entire bag of our groceries by that time. So they had they actually had a plan in which they had a diversion to draw our attention, and then while the others pulled everything out of our trunk. So that, that, that implies a level of intelligence and level of communication that we don't like to think they have. <laughs> and we, we, we learned a very valuable lesson about the high cost of underestimating our fellow creatures. Is they can pull the wool right over your eyes. So. Well, exactly. You can lose all your groceries, <laughs> be stuck out in the wilderness without anything to eat. Um, in this way, um, I also I think your father did an experiment with a raccoon that you, a baby raccoon that you had rescued, and you named him Zorro. Yes, yes. And yes. your father did an experiment with a sugar cube, mm -hmm. right? Yes, right. We, uh, we had, you know, a, a tree had been felled on a neighboring property, and a, a nest of raccoons had been in the tree, and one baby had been killed, but there were two left. So my father said he would take one, and he built a cage that was outside on our house because we didn't want to domesticate Zorro. We wanted him to stay wild so when he was big enough, we could release him. 
Um, and he, you know, we brought him, you know, corn from the fields, you know, and we brought him uh, crayfish from the streams that he learned to catch in his water dish. And so he was learning how to eat, you know, some native foods, the foods that he would eat once he was free again. Um, but at one point, you know, my father was so intrigued by how his instinct was to wash everything before he ate it. Uh, he was too young to have been taught that, so it was obviously instinctual. And he wanted to see what would happen if he gave him a sugar cube. So he gave him a sugar cube, and of course, Zorro went to go wash it, and he washes back and forth, and then he's patting all around the bottom of the pan. Can't find it. My father gives him a second one, same process. He washes, cube disappears, he's looking for it. My father gives him the third cube, and Zorro looks at the water, and he looks at the sugar, and he looks at the water, and he looks at the sugar, and he's just trembling with, <laughs> with his need to wash it versus his understanding that washing it will make it go away. And then he finally just swished it through the water quickly and popped it in his mouth. So only three tries, and he found a compromise between his instinct and his intelligence. And uh, my father was suitably impressed, and so was I. I was like, wow, okay. That's a fast-learning yeah, animal. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And how that that translates to us, where we we keep doing this. What what's the same the same thing over and over, and expecting a different result <laughs> right. because we just get so rigid in our thinking, rather than staying in a a way that keeps us in curiosity and keeps us open to to new things. Do you, do you have any right. comment on that? Yeah, I tell a story about when I was at a university giving a, a talk about modern witchcraft. And uh, this uh, young woman at the front, you know, after a while, she closed her eyes and put her hands over her ears and remained that way for the rest of the lecture. And then afterwards, she went and talked to the teacher before leaving. And the teacher came up to me and said, he said, that young woman would like to apologize. Um, she knows it was very rude for her to close her eyes and put her hands over her ears. But she's a fundamentalist Christian. And what you were saying was starting to make so much sense. She said she knew if she kept listening, she would start to believe it. And I was like, whoa, that's that's a... Uh, that's a terrible commentary to think that you have to close your eyes and your ears because you might start to believe something that you don't already believe, that you might let something in that challenges uh, your previous ideas and experiences. And, and, you know, in a less dramatic way, often many of us do that. And that's, that's a problem we see today that on the, uh, you know, on our computers, you know, we just keep, you know, clicking on the things that agree with us. And we tend not to read the things that disagree. And yet that would be a very good way to find out more about, well, what are these people thinking and why? Um, Even if you still disagree with it just as much at the end, at least you might have some idea as to what are the the justifications happening in their consciousness that, that lends them such a different result than where you are. And is there any place to negotiate that? Is there any place to talk about that difference and to, and to see if anyone might be slightly more convinced or if there might be some space in which we could have our our differences. And, and many differences, there really isn't a lot of space. We really are in a war of consciousness where, you know, we have to fight as hard as we can to defeat misogyny, to defeat racism. Um, 
homophobia, the, the, the callous disregard for the earth. These are things we, you know, we are in a, a culture war of sorts in which, you know, we, we, need to want to, we, we need to be committed to win. But at the same time, underneath all these differences, people are wanting the same things. They want safety for themselves and their family. They want, you know, comfort, enough food and, and, and drink and a, and a place to be and a house to have. And, and they want to have good jobs and they want to be respected. You know, we, we have these commonalities. We just have different ideas of how we're going to get there. And so to try and respect, where's our common ground? We both would like to be respected here. How can I offer some respect to someone I completely disagree with? You know, where can I, where can I connect here to say, oh, you know, I really see why, you would, why having guns seems so important to you. You really want to protect your family. Yeah, I really want to protect my family too. I, wow, I really understand that. You know, so that, you know, we don't demonize the other. Um, but that we, we find the underlying fear or the underlying need that maybe is expressing itself in a counterproductive way. But again, on the underneath, we all want the same things. Exactly, exactly. If we can open ourselves up to really looking beyond our own parochial beliefs and and feel into another, which reminds me... Uh, you had something that that you illustrate how when we have different thoughts of ourselves, we're actually projecting those thoughts. Uh, and there was a woman who sat down next to you at a conference and in just one moment, but I just want to remind our listeners that I'm here with... Kara Dwen Fallingstar, and she is a shamanic witch, uh, uh, a Wiccan priestess, and she's the author of Broth from the Cauldron, A Wisdom Journey Through Everyday Magic. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, which is theheartofthefire.com theheartofthefire.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Kara Dwen Fallingstar, and she's the author of Broth from the Cauldron. And I've 
asked you to share that story of sitting next to someone at a conference. Uh, If you could tell that story and help us understand how we project our thoughts and how they're received by others. Yeah, uh, I was at a Dina Metzger uh, writing workshop and uh, a circle of women, and then a woman sat down next to me. And right away, I had a very adverse reaction. I was like, well, I don't want to sit next to this person. And then, you know, I, I hear myself thinking, she's worthless and insignificant. And then I was like, wait, what the heck? Like those, you know, when, even when I'm being very judgmental of people, worthless and insignificant really isn't what crosses my mind, you know? So, so it, was, it was odd. And yet I kept having this feeling of, you know, she should not even be here. She she's, doesn't even deserve to be here. I was like, why? Why, why are you thinking this? You know, I, I was really perplexed at my reaction. And then, you know, Dina asked us to go around the circle and introduce ourselves and say something about why we were there. And, you know, I you know, went around the circle, I introduced myself, and then it went over to the woman next to me who, I, who had been grating on me all this time. And she said very tremulously, she said, well, I really don't feel like I deserve to be here. You know, I'm really worthless and insignificant, and I have nothing to offer. And I was just, oh, whoa. All of a sudden, I realized why I was thinking these thoughts about her. It was because she was thinking about herself. And as the workshop progressed, I realized I did not dislike this person. You know, that she was really, you know, she was someone who had a a lot of wounding, but, um, you know, she was a sensitive, uh, beautiful soul underneath all that. And that I had had all those rejecting feelings to her simply because she was having them so strongly about herself. And that was a a wake-up call for me to realize that just because I was having an intuitive sense of someone didn't always mean I was right. That sometimes I was being brainwashed by them (laughs) into either thinking they were a better person than they were or that they were a worse person than they were. And that I had to really learn to sort that out of, ah, how much of this is just their program and how much of this is what's really happening over here? So, so that was an interesting, and that was also very interesting to learn. Oh, okay. People are really going to get whatever I'm thinking about myself, even though people may not be as sensitive as I am to picking it up. At some level, they're getting it. And that was a good message for me of how important it is for me to be in a very clean and clear space before I you know, either, you know, go and do a ritual or teach a class or do a one-on-one healing with somebody that I need to really put myself in that place where I'm, I'm just channeling the goddess and my personality is not in the way in some ways that, you know, of course, I'm just a person. Of course, I have my trauma I'm going through. I've got my issues, but how important it is for me to consciously put it on the back burner when I'm going to be interacting with people and helping people so that they don't get hit with, um, you know, my stuff and have my stuff contaminating uh, the field of what I'm trying to do. Oh, it definitely. I, it reminds me of a time in my own life um, early on after I met my husband and we were going to some Buddhist retreats. And there was a um, particular session where it was actually a kind of shamanic thing, uh, a session that we were doing. We were reading one another uh, just by looking at each other. And uh, 
I was so offended by that. I just, I just, I was incensed. I said, I have given no one permission to read me. I was just being really, I don't know, like curmudgeon about the whole thing. And and I realized later that, oh, I may not give permission, but everybody reads me anyway. <laughs> We're reading each other all the time. Right. <laughs> We're, you know, it's not yeah. just what we're saying or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's more than that. And would you would right. you agree? Is this your experience? Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're always picking up information, and sometimes it's a projection coming from us and just being, you know, basically placed on them. But sometimes we're really perceiving, and again, that's part of. Well, for anyone, I don't care whether you think of yourself as as psychic or not. We all need to heighten our abilities of discernment. You know, for for women in particular, it's a survival skill. You know, is it safe to be with this man or not? You know, you better figure out how to do that within the first five minutes or even the first five seconds because there's a lot of unsafety for women in this culture. You know, and that's one reason why women are generally a little more tuned in is because we have to be. Um, in order to survive. So learning how to, how to read people is an essential um, tool, really, for everybody. It's something I actually consciously taught my son when he was a, a little kid. I would take him to the park and sit him down and say, okay, so look at those people over there. How do they seem to you? Do, they, do you think you could trust them? Do they seem sober? Do they seem present? And he would stare at them and really, you know, absorb that. And later, when he was coming into his teens, and I started talking about, you know, that he might be partying with people that he couldn't trust and stuff, he says, oh, Mom, you don't have to worry about that. I can see through people like they were made out of glass. (laughs) And it's true. He's very, very perceptive. Um, There was one other other story that I just loved. Um, And this was a story you told from um, a dear friend of both of us and a teacher Patricia's son. Yeah, I learned this from Patricia's son. The idea was, you know, you could, it could be any time, but let's say it's in the Middle East and this guy's out watching the sheep and he's sitting on a rock and eating a sandwich and suddenly has this incredible vision, this incredible vision that will change everything for his whole tribe. And he runs back and he ta- gathers the whole tribe and he tells them his incredible vision. And right away, everyone says, which rock? What kind of sandwich? <laughs> and that that's religion. It's all about the rock and the sandwich. It's like getting hung up on, oh, you have to sit on this kind of rock, this exact rock, and you have to eat this exact kind of sandwich, and then God will favor you. And that really the rock and the sandwich has nothing to do with the vision. That, you know, rather than getting hung up and, oh, well, I'm this religion, but they're that religion. Well, I guess we can't talk. You know, like, I remember when the, I read that the Dalai Lama said that his religion was kindness. I was like, oh, well, look at that. The Dalai Lama and I have the same religion. Um, you know, now technically he's a Buddhist and I'm a witch, but both of us think our religion is kindness. And so finding that way again to, to realize the rock in the sandwich, that's not where it's at. So would you say that like Wiccan is, um, it's not so set on a rock and a sandwich. It's moving and, and flowing. And as you said earlier in this interview, it's it's the ebb and flow of something. So can would you describe Wiccan as something 
that's flowing and unfolding rather than so rigid? Uh, yes. I mean, Wicca comes from the root word of willow, you know, and I know how the willow bends and moves with the wind. You know, it's that, that's the idea, is that this is the path of, of um, they sometimes call it the twisted path, which doesn't mean twisted like perverse. It means the way lightning comes down out of the sky or the way a river carves its way through the landscape. It's moving uh, to the path of least resistance. Um, that said, just because somebody says they're a witch or a Wiccan doesn't mean they're not just as likely as anyone else to get bogged down and, well, we always do the ritual like this, and we have to start like this, and we always say this. And you know, sometimes uh, we call them Episcopagans. You know, people are very, very strict about, again, they, they get into the form because they can't quite get over to the essence. You know, they have the, they have the idea of, of the outside, what it looks like, but they don't know how to get to how it feels. Um, so it's really... Again, very individual as to, you know, are you, are you in the mystical part of your tradition or are you in the very rule-bound part of your tradition? And that, again, crosses all those boundaries. I, exactly. I, I can remember, though, um, that one of the forms of Wicca would be um, you form the circle, so to speak, you call it in, and then you dismiss it. And you, you, you kind of that's that is a kind of form that's that's followed, pretty pretty much all the time. I remember one circle we did was um, we we did not um, close a circle, and we were calling in Kali at the time. It's what we were doing, and and. Oh no! <laughs> and it turned out that the uh, the altar of the woman who was hosting us burned that night, <laughs> and we we learned our lesson. Oh, we gotta we gotta dismiss yeah. the circle, and yeah. and we we really learned our lesson. It was a very powerful yeah. lesson. Yeah, yeah, I know. When I was a young witch, I also wanted to experiment with that. <laughs> I, I did that thing where I said, oh, well, I'm not going to dismiss the circle. The energy is so great. Let's just keep it up all night. But then I couldn't go to sleep. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have to dismiss it so we can sleep. So we can sleep. Um, you know, that yes, a lot of these these rules and these ways of doing things, you know, they've come down from a long time. There's something to it. So, yeah, I'm not saying have no forms right. or no rules. Just... Um, don't think that that's the whole thing. You know, I was I was at a New Age kind of a, a workshop once, and and the people said, "Oh, we're going to do a sacred ritual," and then I'm saying, "Oh, good, I can't wait." You know, and 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 they very carefully build the altar, and they're like, "Okay, that's the ritual." I was like, "Well, that was just setting up the altar." <laughs> like, okay, nice start, but. Just setting up the altar. Oh, we could go on and on. I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions with us today, Kara Dwin. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Kara Dwin Fallingstar. She's the author of Broth from the Cauldron, A Wisdom Journey Through Everyday Magic. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, theheartofthefire.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3747. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973. 
thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.